I've seen Jesus play with flames in the lake of fire I was standing in Met the devil in Seattle Spent nine months inside the lion's den Met Booty yet another time He showed me a glowing light within But I swear that God is there Every time I go to the eyes of my best friend Says my son, it's all been done Someday you're gonna wake up old and gray Go and try and have some fun Showing warmth to everyone Need and greet and cheat along the way Somewhere out there Far beyond this place We're reptile aliens Made of life Cut you open Pull out all your pain Tell me how you make illegal Something that I'm making out free Some say you might go crazy Then again it might make you go insane Every time you take a look Inside that old fable book Blinded and reminded of Pain caused by some old man in the sky Marijuana, LSD Psilocybin, DMT, the options, we ask, love's the only thing that ever saved my life. Don't waste your mind on nursery rhymes, fairy tales, blood and wine, turtles on the way down. Hello and good evening. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. This will be our penultimate man show, and it's coming to you from the future. This evening, I'm on the line with Melbourne, Australia, to discuss the secret teachings of all ages. Speaking of Australia, in the middle of next month, deep into our showcase of Tree Fork bands, we'll be speaking with a band from Melbourne, Twerps. Check them out. Really looking forward to it. Also, I need to give special thanks to the SyncBook Trust and all those who have donated over the years. Alan Major made a huge announcement today, and we just want you to know that we couldn't have done it without your help. Thank you so very much. Tonight, we get the special treat of meeting someone whose work we've really come to enjoy. And here I'm speaking of SyncBook Radio contributing producer Nicholas Ulbrich. 
Mr. Elbrick, a charter member of the Syncbook Trust, has contributed essays to Always Record number 84 and produced the entire episode of Always Record number 102. Both fascinating. If you haven't heard 102, you need to give it a listen. Mr. Elbrick recently completed his master's thesis on contemporary engagement with conspiracy narratives. And for this episode, he's chosen to explore the secret teachings of the Fraternity of the Rosy Cross, which seems fitting. We're very pleased to be meeting him tonight. How are you doing, Nick? I'm doing really well, Doug. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. No Will still? Hopefully he'll come back soon. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, yes, you know, that's worth addressing. January is the busiest season for him at his work, and so he thought it best to, to lay out this month and maybe, you know, part of next month. And also get some, he's got a bunch of videos he's trying to produce, the Sync Summit videos, and he's working on some writing at the same time. So he, it's like a mini sabbatical that he's taking. So he'll be popping up again real soon. Yeah, and people have been missing him, so uh, it's probably time that It's he... not, not to say that we don't love you too, though, Doc. It's, uh, we just noticed his absence, and, uh, you know, the heart grows fonder. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> Maybe I need a break now. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> uh, master's thesis in conspiracy. Yeah, that was uh, that was that was something. Three years of my life to um, to research how people think about conspiracy theories, and specifically, I did a qualitative analysis. So we were looking at the way that people conceptualize the narratives in relation to their own lives. So rather than investigate, say, um, whether or not the Titanic was a terrible tragedy accident or whether it was some insurance fraud or something like that, uh, instead I went and interviewed 10 people and we sat down similar to what you do uh, and then I went home and and transcribed their uh, commentary uh, onto my computer, and over the course of I think 18 months or so after that, I painstakingly went through every single word that they said and um, made some commentaries on it and, and linked it to things like the X Files and the way that popular culture shaped our conception of conspiracy theories. Uh, and then I, I made a critique of uh, some of the contemporary literature. Um, and so some people in conspiracy theories, uh, if there are any who listen to this show, would be familiar with names like Richard Hofstetter or Cass Sunstein. And I sort of said, well, perhaps we need to take a more phenomenal, phenomenological approach to conspiracy theories and look at them as, as actual spaces where people can communicate their thoughts and ideas about the world in a very similar way to they do with science fiction. Interesting. And so then, where, where do you fall out in that whole realm of conspiracy narrative? I, that word is their narrative. And like one of the people that we interviewed actually called conspiracy almost a genre. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because perhaps you look at something like what we do at Syncbook uh, if I can be as ostentatious as to include myself in your work. Um, Please do. And we investigate the the kind of, I don't know, the phenomena of synchronicity 
but there's no ultimate truth and there's no faction fractions or factions even that arise I, I mean you can never use absolutes and I guess that's one thing that, that so far we've as a community that we've been good at doing is avoiding absolutes. Uh, the Kubrickon episode with Jason Horsley and Michael Clare was intense and passionate and there were certainly at times disagreements, but I think that uh, Aeolus and Mark both walked away from that enriched and I don't think either of them, I can't speak for either of them, but I don't think either of them is harboring resentment or anything like that. And I, but I, at the same time, if you log on to like one of the big, you know, or, you know, or pick, I'll pick an example that is perhaps less controversial. If you log on to a forum dealing with the Oscar Pistorius um, murder case and the deconstruction of that, then there are groups that arise that are not based on evidence-based conspiracy theory, but rather emotional-based, you know. And I think that's where it becomes difficult to say I'm a conspiracy theorist or I'm this or I'm that. I often catch myself saying that I'm paranoid, Hmm. but perhaps that's a different thing. And... So there's that division, isn't there, really, where you, where it is a genre because you've got this kind of, if you log onto YouTube and look up, you know, 2015 Illuminati predictions or, you know, um, what... Um, what about... what it, uh, The thing that is most striking at this point, now every, you know, tragedies always happen, but now they're completely media mediaized or you know they're just there's so many eyeballs on them that everything is some kind of conspiracy some kind of false flag event it's hard yeah. it's hard well if we bring it back to what we do yeah with with synchronicity the idea that there's meaningful coincidence involved in events this is something that doesn't make me lose sleep you know like there's weird stuff that we don't understand but it seems like part of the conspiracy narrative is there's some bad guys that are actually in control that are manifesting or orchestrating the things to happen the way they happen sure but i don't okay this is contentious because it it is well what you're saying is contentious and what i'm about to say is also contentious in the sense that whether or not black holes exist for the moment let's say they do okay just to because there's been spec you know stephen hawkins came out and said look i might have got it wrong maybe black holes don't exist but let's hypothetically say that they exist then the the head of the illuminati the the you know the i don't want to use names here at all so we'll just say the lizard king not Jim Morrison, but you know, <laughs> not him, but the the lizard queen or whatever you want to say. <laughs> Can they control a, a black hole? Like if they walk out to the beach and put their palm up and 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 say stop, will the tide stop 
So this is where you've got to ask the question like, okay, sure, maybe there are some bad dudes in control, but are they really in control? Like they're still going to be affected by the physical reality of gravity and, and nitrogen and hydrogen and oxygen in the air. You know? Yeah. I mean, so I'm not so naive to not think that every political system that's ever been since the dawn of civilization has oppressed people and manipulated people for their own financial ends. But it seems like conspiracy narratives tend to simplify things sometimes a little too much. Yeah, I think so. And this is a nice segue because we're talking about oppression, particularly political oppression, and we're saying that conspiracy theories are a form of resistance to that political impression, in, oppression. And in fact, you could almost say that for the disaffected or the marginalised or those on the fringes of a, a mainstream political thought process, whether it's a Republican v. Democrat or a Labour versus Liberal or, you know, a, whatever it is in other countries, um, you you find that conspiracy theories offer a voice to the otherwise voiceless. They give a form of political power to the otherwise powerless, but it's a very ineffective power. And it's a very kind of quiet voice in the grand scheme of things because there's not a lot of actionable ends to it in the direct sense like there is with sync. I mean, there are times like, for example, in your most recent episode, you began the episode with Radio April consulting the pop article uh, and asking whether or not you um, could know the secret of Kabbalah or the secret teaching of Kabbalah. Um, that's an action that you can take through sync that is very personal, that is very direct. And I think with synchronicity, I guess it's a little bit hippy dippy new age, but you could you could live your whole life without consciously making decision by consciously making the decision to always go with sync. Um, so if you're wearing a purple top and you see a purple bus or an ad with a, a, a bus with a purple ad on it, then you catch that bus instead of your regular bus, and then you follow the next sync and the next sync and the next sync until eventually you're however far down your life, married with kids and, and, and whatever it is. At the same time, I think conspiracy theories give a sense of identity to people in a way that, they may not otherwise have had it. It's not quite an ego death. It's more like an ego murder, and they have to almost resurrect their ego through conspiracy theories. Now, I'm not, I'm not proselytizing or psychoanalyzing anybody, and I'm not even saying that I'm correct in that analysis. It's just one way of looking at it. But similarly, you could say secret societies do the same thing. However, like the Rosicrucian secret society that was fighting political oppression in the Enlightenment specifically um, in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, it, it was very effective. Right. Or perhaps it wasn't. See, this is where we get into that whole mystery where Manly P. Hall is, is questioning, well, who were the Rosicrucians? Right. Well, I mean, so one of the things that I heard was that the institutions where democracy developed 
were the secret societies and they had to out of necessity because the king's power was absolute. Like that was a fish tank where the water was. You were completely in that political system and therefore there was no – the idea that there could be anything different was not even something you can imagine because you were in that system fully subject to you know whatever crown was the, the master. So if I understand you correctly, draw the analogy to language. So like the English language, if you only speak English, is such a complete system that you cannot escape it. Is that sort of what you're saying, the political analog of that? Well, I, the political <laughs> – interestingly enough, it, like the idea that there's a system other than capitalism, it's difficult for modern people at this point in – time and history to imagine a system that isn't capitalism. Sure, but we're communists in our day-to-day -day life. I mean, do you, you're married, yeah? Yeah. And, and so do you kind of, when you do things for your wife, jot them down a little notebook, like cook your dinner tonight, wash the dishes tonight, put the kids to bed tonight? You know, no, we don't do that. We just do it and because we, we care for the other person and it's not about expecting an exact reciprocity it's more having that community so on the personal on the fundamental level i disagree with you but on the on the mass scale uh in the in the collective unconscious in the Jungian sense i don't i have no idea maybe maybe we've lost our imagination i guess if there was a point there it was that i read somewhere that the that the secret societies were the place where they there was a it was the space where you could discuss the ideas that you couldn't discuss. And so and I found well, that interesting, that that oftentimes the secret societies are portrayed as more of a mystical thing, where you're going off to to do things that are removed from your material life. And I, I liked that. I don't know where I read it, but I liked that idea that that it there was this connection to material life, that the there was a purpose in in the secrecy, subversion. Well, yeah, and and I think I think that at least in contemporary manifestations, like if you go onto the Amrock website, which is the organization, I guess the biggest Rosicrucian organization, contemporary organization, anyway. Um, they will they will publicly state in their manifesto that their actual goal is humanism as opposed to spirituality. But that doesn't detract from that triangle with the Rosicrucian in the middle and then on the top right you've got humanism, on the top left you've got spirituality and at the bottom point, the bottom angle is ecology. And I think that's what's important. And, and, you know, I think in the in the chapters that we read together, Doug, uh, 33, 34, 35, especially in 33 and 34, um, the tenets of Rosicrucianism and what was the, what was, you have 30? Drawings. 30, yeah, 35 was the 15 Kabbalistic um Diagrams, but 34 just gone blank on. Um, 
what was it, the Fraternity of the Rose Cross with the four, five postulates. I think what Manly P. Hall really goes into, and, and more so in his lectures as well, was the mythology. Like you, you spoke to, I think it was Ty two or three weeks ago about ISIS, uh-huh. um, and you had the the mythology of ISIS uh, as being almost as important as the history. And likewise with Pythagoras, I think you were talking about Simon Critchley's interview when you were speaking to Marty Leeds and talking about how Pythagoras may not have been historical. Um, Maybe, maybe not, but the mythology of Pythagoras is what's important. And I think that's what Manly P. Hall is commenting on. And I think this is a very roundabout way to get to your kind of question about political oppression, but the mythology, the story of the community under a king, where the king is the sovereign, I think people look at that with a sense of historicism or presentism, which is where we apply 21st, 22nd century values to a situation that, you know, your iPhone won't work in the 5th century. So we have to be careful about how we look at these things. And I'm speculating, but I think to a degree there's, when you're able to abdicate your responsibility at least politically, to such an extent that there's a king who has to make all the decisions because that's their God-given authority, then, yeah, you give up a lot of liberty. Uh, And it's not a trade between liberty and security, but it is a trade between liberty and responsibility in the sense of your ability to respond. So there's that element of, I guess, in that feudal system, and I, I'm imagining in my mind like a castle and there's, there's a king in the castle and then the, the, the feudal farms or whatever it is within the castle walls or very close to. In that scenario, um, I think there's an element of peace that you where you don't have to worry about how am I going to ward off the neighbouring army? You know, if you're Duncan, how am I going to keep Macbeth at bay? Um, Actually, in that in the medieval worldview, I think the the universe was ordered, and your place was. I don't know when that was broken up. Maybe it was the Enlightenment, but but so. An individual, Copernicus, Galileo, that kind of thing. Well, there was a sense of place. The universe was ordered. Things made sense. There was a worldview in place. And so like that would be the other side of what we're talking about, where, yeah, the death of God the, in truth, the Nietzsche. idea of truth, yeah, where th- yeah. The, the idea of a uh, some kind of structure that, we fit into is broken apart you know the same i I think of that's in terms of the same time when when perspective comes into paintings and and your eye becomes you know the you become the authority basically it's the death of god (laughs) right or even pop songs like uh you've you've mentioned taylor swift a few times 
uh, over the last month as well. And um, that's just funny because um, she's very popular here at the moment. She just she just performed a month ago or something, and uh, she, they were already pre-selling her tickets for December. So um, she's all over the radio here. And my girlfriend and I have been singing along, specifically Shake It Up. But if you think about her song Blank Space, right, the lyrics go along the lines of I've got uh, a blank space baby and I'll write your name. Now, my point here isn't to generate sales for Miss Swift. I'm sure she's fine that that was herself. But to think about it as you're then imbibing the first person and you're saying those words as kind of like a mantra, right? Right. Which is the sense of all these pop songs are in the first person so you can't imagine it as being someone else. When you when you hear that song or when you hear the song that you got last week, which was I'll Be Breaking Up Tonight, then it's you asking that question. It's Douglas Bowles asking, am I breaking up tonight? Rather than imagining the artist singing the song, lamenting the end of his possible relation or the possible end to his relationship. I think is that the same thing when you when you take on the perspective of the painter, like like Roland Barthes says, like the author is dead, but the reader lives in that sense. And that perhaps isn't what we're, we're talking about in terms of this medieval worldview. But if you were to challenge that, I just, I'm imagining the amount of resistance and hence the, you know, necessity is the mother of all inventions. So perhaps out of necessity, secret societies were invented to preserve a kind of balance or, or some kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say like pressure valve situation for political oppression, but some kind of space where it didn't have to come to a war or something like that, that then becomes ingrained in things like the building of temples and cathedrals. Have, had you ever read Manly P. Hall before? So I've got the Secret Order of Freemasonry uh-huh. at, at home. Um, well, I'm curious about whether or not he translated—not like translated—but was he an American figure, and therefore he's more of an American mystic? And I mean, the thing that I really came to realize is that a lot of these guys that I talked to, both on the show and and just around read Manly P. Hall at a certain time in their life, and he really kind of opened doors for them as far as their thinking and opened, like, new worlds to them, the idea that there's more than what we've been shown. And so I'm just wondering if, if it, maybe it's an American thing, or... I'm. Because I, I know that I came into contact with some, a lot of the ideas, but I didn't, I didn't ever read any Manly P. Hall... Okay, so I guess it's like, well, I was born in the late 80s, um, so I'm only, I'm only 27, ah. so I don't know if that makes me much younger than your, your other sort of guests. I, it's hard to tell. I mean, you guys all seem like you're in your 30s, but maybe you're in your 40s. I, so there could be a generation difference as well. In terms of answering your question, though, for me, anyway, 
stunning conspiracy theories. A lot of the media, I think just a lot of the alternative media in general is geared around an American audience and, and the rest of the world kind of is lucky enough to, to be invited to the party. Um, and that's not exclusively true. I mean, you've got people like Vinnie Eastwood, for example. Um, I mean, Henrik is over in, in Sweden. It, it, it's not quite like that, but certainly, and, and David Icke, I guess, is in um, London, isn't he? But when you, when you, if you come to it through, say, so 9-11 would have been the big one for a lot of people, but actually I didn't, I didn't care because I was 14. 14, 13, when it happened, 13 or 14. And I was a school kid and I just didn't care. I was kind of like, well, you can't go around bombing the rest of the world, you know, Clinton. Um, this is a repercussion. And I, I, I believe the blowback. And I didn't like – there was a TV program called That's My Bush that was just taking the, the – I don't know if – you say this is uh, how you say in your language taking the piss. Um, no, it's an Australian term for like taking the Mickey or making fun of. Yeah. So there was this show that was taking the piss out of George Bush called "That's My Bush" and it was hilarious. But all that kind of humour, all that kind of open defiance, open kind of diversity died immediately after 9-11 and that's what I was upset about. I was upset about this sudden change in the pop culture and it, it, it there was a delay, you know, there was a sort of, there's always this ideological inertia that happens. So like after the fall of the Nazi party, the Nazis didn't just go away, they just put their uniforms at the back of their closet, you know what I mean? Like there's this inertia, the ideas just didn't, die at the end of the war and, and likewise the ideas of the 90s of that kind of big open sigh of relief that we didn't blow ourselves up in the cold war didn't just go away straight away but the the tyranny of 9-11 and what happened after 9-11 didn't quite sink in probably until about 2003 and that's when it really started to impact the pop culture and suddenly people were a lot less open about criticising the government and that's perhaps even when you start to get that surge of marvel i'm speculating now i haven't yeah. done any research to this but perhaps someone could look into that and see well when did the marvel films really start to take off and i'd say you know you did have spider-man just about to be released when 9-11 happened because remember that to change the promo because yeah. of the the buildings in it but for me, it was the global financial crisis. And actually what I wanted to do with my thesis was to look at the way that the savings and loan crisis and the global financial crisis kind of bookended this idea of greed is good. And I really wanted to look into that idea. And, and, and so I was trying to use the pop culture as a feedback loop for the way that the consumer culture was being steered or guided or directed but every time I got to a certain point there was just this big elephant in the room called conspiracy right the same people who are involved in savings and loans like almost literally the same rooms the same offices the same building were then responsible for 
kind of allowing the festering situation to continue that resulted in in uh, Lehman Brothers collapsing. Now, you can't say that what Henry Paulson and that did afterwards was connected necessarily, but certainly the consequences that resulted didn't come out of nowhere. And I think that it was interesting to look at the way that pop culture was like you look at Wall Street and then Wall Street money never sleeps and the difference in tone. Now, is that Oliver Stone maturing as a director? Is that Charlotte LaBeouf, you know, arguing in his contract? Who knows? Um, but it led me down the conspiracy path and it, and it really led me towards American culture. Now, Manly P. Hall is a massive figure in that. Um, but in terms of... It's such a hard question to answer, Doug, because if a if, if if the chicken hadn't happened, the egg wouldn't happen, right? Or if the egg hadn't happened, the chicken wouldn't happen. So I don't know. If I hadn't have started writing a thesis, I wouldn't have started building a library. And if I hadn't started building a library, I never would have heard of Manly P. Hall. So I, it, wasn't, it wasn't like all my friends were reading Manly P. Hall, and, and there was a craze. Perhaps that is an American thing. Um, but a lot of the things that I've come across, I've come across through this kind of thing, podcasts and, and following up. And, you know, when, when you mention a book, I go and, and see would I like to read that, and I, I, I jot it down, that kind of thing. Could you see yourself... Reading more of this, did you enjoy it? What what were your thoughts on these three chapters? I think they were a little out of context. I think there was an, an element where I would have liked to have sat down and read the entire book, but I also noticed that there was a, a Rosicrucian literature that I was missing out on. So I I went and I read the alchemical wedding or the chemical nuptials that he speaks about, uh, which is where we get this character, the father Christian Rosenkreutz. Um, which is then where we get Rosicrucianism, um, or at least Christian Rosenkreutz, if he was a real character, was introduced to kind of, I don't know, well, the opposite of Occidental, whether that's like Muslim, Islam, or Oriental philosophy, literature. However, it's got kind of parallels the Knights Templar story in a way, this Christian Rosenkreutz character. But either way, these are not, Rosicrucianism is not new ideas and it's not original ideas. I mean, we're talking about the same archetypes that manifest in Egyptian mythology, Roman mythology, and Greek mythology. So it's just um, perhaps the Catholic spin on the Jungian archetypes. Um, but yeah, I had to go and read that and then. I went and read J.D. Selinger's Franny and Zoe, which led me to The Pilgrim's Way, which I read some of that. Um, so I didn't it's, – it's difficult for me to answer that question. I, I enjoyed the mystery that Manly P. Hall outlines, but at the same time I, I felt like I did need more context to make an informed judgment. And I'm looking forward to reading um, other chapters in it, but I'm also looking forward to reading um, – uh, the the origins of Freemasonry and the lost keys of Freemasonry. Yeah. Well, I yeah, I think 
okay, I, this is one of those books that I always felt like I had to read, and that's one of the reasons why I decided to do this series of shows. But I think the same Christmas that I was given this book, I was also given The Alchemical Wedding, um, which is strange because it's so short, but what it was that I was giving is was a, a commentary on it, some Dutch commentary on it, and it's pretty interesting. But I, I seem to remember recently, I don't know, I wish I could remember, I somebody was debunking a lot of the historical aspects of the mythology, which I don't have, I mean, I don't need, <laughs> I like myths just fine, and I know that academics want to verify and understand factually what you know, if, you know, the claims are true, but I, I wish I could remember what, I, I think, you know, the gist was that, that there wasn't anything beyond, like, the 18th century, no, it was 17th century, yeah. Yeah, and that's where, where Manly P. Hall, we get back to Manly P. Hall, because he was, he was throwing it to Francis Bacon, and saying, well, look, we have nothing, but all of a sudden Francis Bacon is writing some interesting stuff and that corresponds with this and that. Uh, I mean, the reality is the dates go, say, 1407 is when the alchemical wording happened, if it happened, right? If Christian Rosenkreutz is real, then that's when he started his journey and gathered his his people. So just to let people who haven't who aren't familiar with it and I don't know I'm not an expert I guess I have to put that out there um, and I'm really only at the very beginning of my journey in studying Rosicrucianism but the kind of Reader's Digest version is that there was this gentleman Christian Rosenkreutz who went to this wedding now the wedding could be like the wedding that Jesus turns water into wine at in the Bible in the New Testament it, it's not clear whether it's an actual wedding or whether it's a metaphor. Um, but the basic story in the alchemical wedding is one of transfiguration or, or at least redemption of some kind of spirituality where there's a, a the character arc is a massive change. So the Christian Rosenkreutz that leaves the wedding is not the one who came to the wedding. And through this, he's actually initiated and through reading it, I think the reader is initiated into some of the the sort of the foundations, you know, the wax on, wax off of the tenets of Rosicrucianism. But from that, he then collected, I don't know, what was it, four disciples or, or four, four brothers who then studied this stuff on their own. And at some point they got proficient enough and said, okay, now we need to spread it. The thing is, though, or from what I understand, you can you can be called to Rosicrucianism, but there's only a few that are chosen. Like you can't just. It's not like Kabbalah or something where you can elect to study it, or Masonry where you can, you know, go to your local lodge and, and move up the levels. It seems to me that Rosicrucianism you have to be kind of tapped. You have to be a very special. At least that's what came out in the Alchemical Wedding. Now. The confusion, I think, what I've come across comes from is that they didn't publish the Alchemical Wedding and they didn't publish their manifesto, which is Fama Fraterniatus, 
um, until 1614, which is around the time that Bacon was writing. So Manly P. Hall speculates that Bacon wrote it himself to kind of cover some of his tracks. And then this leads into the was Francis Bacon Shakespeare thing. But I think that there's something more interesting going on beyond that. I mean, you can take that line of thinking and look at that, but ultimately these stories are about mythology and symbolism. And I think if we look at, like even the Lord's Prayer, I don't know if you've read Salinger's Franny and Zoe or Zoe, but there's this like element of like, how can you say the Lord's Prayer if you don't know who Jesus is? It's a very simple prayer. Um, so simple I haven't memorized it, but it's a very, <laughs> it's a very simple prayer, but to kind of say it continuously, even when you're asleep, you, you have to know who Jesus is. And that's the level beneath the surface. So someone like Oscar Wilde said, in art, there's surface and there's symbol. Uh, and those who go beneath the surface do so at their own peril. I think, yes, just like those who drink from the well of wisdom, a, a little is no good, you need to drink a lot. But I think what we're seeing here is that in art and music, this is where we sneak in our political messages that are otherwise unpalatable. And I think buildings are the same. And, and Goethe, who wrote Faust, made a similar observation when he said that architecture was frozen art. So there's the literal, but there's also the figurative. And if we get caught up on, well, did this myth happen? Like, did Noah's Ark really crash into Mount Sinai? And is this his, you know, the, the big National Geographic special of we've found Noah's Ark, you know. But you're missing the figurative element of the story your, your your thinking at that point has become too concrete and you're debating the existence of god through the mechanism of the scientific method you're not going to get very far in my opinion what is the significance of the rose and the cross the idea is for me anyway time time and weights and measures so the cross i think represents the four well it represents man i think in a way but it represents man in time like so the, it's kind of like the the pillar of man or the ventruvian man kind of thing where you've got the that situation going on and then the rose is the spirit within man is the the soul within man and the soul is is tethered to the body but it's tethered to the body within time so this is where you get to ideas of, of saturn and chronos and chronology and then this is where you get to the idea of weights and measures and so for me i'm skipping a lot here but the rose and the cross is really like it's like anchor what in a way and you know the um uh in cambodia the the pyramid there. So one time a year at Angkor Wat, and I apologise if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, the light hits it in just such a way that the um, the entire thing lights up. Well, that's brilliant in terms of an architectural feat, but 
you can't stop there. You also have to view it as a sociological feat. And what that is built is a festival because everyone's going to come to see it every year, right? We have something in Melbourne called White Night where they project colours onto all our big buildings. Um, and so every year um, people, 500,000, like you cannot walk in a straight line in the city because there's so many people in the city. So that's that's the same thing. So I think in the same way the rose and the cross actually to condense it into one sentence is a morals and values within a certain society. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. You bet. You've been listening to Nicholas Ulbrich on SyncBook Radio, a production of SyncBook.com. Information about the work of Mr. Ulbrich can be found at thesyncbook.com slash alwaysrecord. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. Oh, no. I did not prepare anything else. Uh, thanks so much, and look at me. I can do anything. I'm the Lizard King. <laughs> I don't know. I'll figure something out. Thanks. Mr. Mojo Rising. <laughs> there we go. I, I did three shows today. That's crazy. You are crazy. in the street and roaming dogs in heat rabid foaming a beast caged in the heart of the city the body of his mother rotting in the summer ground he fled the town he went down south and crossed the border left chaos and disorder back there over his shoulder. One morning he awoke in a green hotel with a strange creature groaning beside him. Sweat oozed from its shiny skin. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Wake up! You can't remember where it was had this dream stopped. The snake was pale gold glazed and shrunken. We were afraid to touch it. The sheets were hot, dead prison. And she was beside me. 
against morning Rug silent Mirrors vacant Dust blind under the beds of lawful couples Wound in sheets and daughters Smug with semen Eyes in their Wait! There's been a slaughter here. Don't stop to speak or look around. Your gloves and fan are on the ground. You're getting out of town. You're going on the run, and you're the one I want to come.
the top of the hill Rich are the rooms and the comforts there Red are the arms of luxurious chairs You won't know a thing Till you get inside, yeah And I can 